The largest company in the world recently announced its first carbon-neutral smartwatch. You may have heard about it. But they're not exactly the first to offer carbon-neutral versions of their products, and in fact, there's been a lot of debate and discussion about what that really means. And, you know, we wanted to ask those questions that have been on everyone's mind about what does make a product carbon-neutral and how does it really help address climate change? Welcome to Season 3 of Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm here with our producer, Rebecca Charbowski. Hi, Chris. Hey, Rebecca. Would you tell us all about today's guest? Yes. Sherry Hickok is CEO of Climate Impact Partners. They're behind a lot of those carbon-neutral products that you're talking about. They work with organizations around the world to support projects like clean power, solar water heating, forest preservation, And she has a really interesting background that informs her work. She's a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. And before joining Climate Impact Partners, she worked for GE in renewable energy. Yeah, it is an interesting background. And she was also able to explain how to measure carbon in a way that even I could understand it, (laughs) which I really appreciated. And she's also really able to explain how their work fits into the bigger picture of efforts to reduce carbon emissions and address climate change. It's an important conversation Mm -hmm. at an important time. And we'd love to ask our listeners if they enjoy it. And we hope they do, because we sure did, to share it with a friend, with a colleague, especially if this is a topic that's important to them. So Sherry joins us from the UK. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for joining us at Work Better. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, we know that Climate Impact Partners invests in projects to reduce carbon emissions, and I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about what that is, because everybody may not know exactly what a carbon offset is. But when I went out and started looking about, you know, what people were talking about in terms of offsets, and some of the things I want to ask you about, because there are people who are saying, well, carbon offsets really are just kind of a distraction. They're delaying companies from actually doing the hard work of reducing their own carbon emissions. Some people go as far as saying it's a scam. So can you start out by telling us first, what is a carbon offset? And then why should people believe that they work? Yeah, that's, those are really, really great. And I think pertinent questions based on a lot of the media that's out right now, Chris. So I'll first start with the question on what's a carbon offset. And I'll even back it up just briefly and say, let's start with a carbon credit. Okay. Okay. So what's a carbon credit? A carbon credit is created when there's an investment, some type of financial investment that flows towards a project or a product of some kind. And there's multiple types where that project or product wouldn't come to life, it wouldn't happen without that investment. And the result of that project or product is either avoiding an emission or reducing an emission of carbon, okay? Okay. When you can do that and demonstrate that it meets specific criteria of additionality, permanence, durability, et cetera, which there are specific standards set, and you can prove that, then you're issued a carbon credit. When that carbon credit is sold to a corporate or other organization, and it's applied against their carbon footprint, 
to say, okay, I'm now one carbon ton less, for example, then it turns into an offset. It's offset your emissions. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of uh, two steps in there getting to a carbon offset. Is that helpful? It is helpful. So uh, as we're producing a chair, uh, we can work toward reducing the emissions that come from the design and the production of the chair but then if we're not able to bring that all the way down to zero, then the role of the offset is literally to offset that, to come up with another way to help reduce the carbon overall to where you kind of you bring it to zero. Is that right? That's exactly right. And then we could take that into your question on, you know, does this just mean that um, people are getting away? Does this work? Yeah. Is it is it not real? Is it a scam? Well, first, I just want to start by saying that we at Climate Impact Partners and I myself wholeheartedly believe in the role of the voluntary carbon market, where these carbon credits are created, issued, and sold, that the voluntary carbon market can play a meaningful role in helping to solve the climate crisis. And we'll talk a little bit about that and delivering impact towards that. The first question you had, you know, and I think this is a really prevalent statement I hear a lot, that if people use offsets, they're not actually doing the hard work. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple studies that show now, I think three have been done in the last three months that I've read, that companies that invest in carbon offsets are decarbonizing their own footprint, so abating their own footprint at twice the pace of companies who are not. Okay. The actual numbers tied to that are companies who are investing in offsets are reducing their own emissions 6% a year versus 3% a year on average of companies who don't. So that's just the data. That's not me defending it or not defending it. Because if people are willing to put their money towards this, they're willing to make hard decisions other places. And you know, the point about them being a scam, what I would encourage people is really go, you know, look for the data and look for the details. So I've had the opportunity, though I've just been with Climate Impact Partners for six months now, to visit two projects, actually multiple, but in two regions of the world, one in Indonesia and multiple in Africa. And what I would tell you is it's like anything in your life. When you go and see, or as the Japanese say, go to Gemba, you mm -hmm. actually can understand what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, there's real impact coming from these projects. Trees are really going into the ground. There's real livelihood created, health benefits and impact. And you can see it. So I want to poke at this a little bit because when we look at companies that are investing in the reduction of their own emissions and they're also reducing or they're also investing in carbon offsets. I mean, that kind of makes sense because it signals, you know, here is a company that is really trying to take a, an active role in terms of anything they can do to help uh, mitigate the worst effects of climate change. But, you know, couldn't we argue that the investment that is going into a carbon offset might be better spent in you know, alternative fuel investments or, you know, investing in different kinds of energy, you know, alternative energy sources or other things like that that can actually help reduce the carbon that, you know, those of us who are in industries that make things, you know, that physically produce things, you know, we do have an impact on the planet from that perspective. So wouldn't it be better if we just spent our money trying to reduce that, that impact? It's another really great question. And what I would just share is a couple things. Um, one, 
If you actually look what we're trying to do, just backing all the way out big picture, is our goal as a a globe is to follow the science. Mm -hmm. The science says we need to keep the global warming down to 1.5 degrees. In order to do that, we need to have the emissions by 2030 and have net zero by 2050. What we do know today is twofold. We do not have the technology to do that. And even if we did that all with technology, we actually are still eroding the biodiversity of the earth and -hmm. the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And so what's actually interesting in this is we need all of these solutions to come into play. And I know most corporates believe in and follow on the science-based targets initiative, where they've even said, according, you know, to get to net zero by 2050, which is the goal, it's likely in a maximum case, we'd only be able to abate 90% of the emissions. So even in that case, you still have 10% that have to be offset in some form. Mm -hmm. And we're not even talking about the livelihood impact yet. So if we just spent a a little bit more time on that and talk numbers, we emit into the Earth's atmosphere 50 billion tons of emissions each year, 50 billion. And when we talk about 10% of 50 billion, we need 5 billion tons a year from a market like either direct air capture or the voluntary carbon market. Mm -hmm. So the headline that you will often hear next to, you should only do abating is we actually need everything right now because there aren't solutions to enable you to abate everything. And it's not an either or, we need to do all of these. But if we put all of our eggs in one basket, we likely won't get to the answer we need. Yeah. And it's complicated. I mean, I'm in my role only kind of on the periphery within our organization of the work that needs to happen to legitimately reduce emissions. And it is complicated work. And I have nothing but admiration for the people who are trying so hard to make that happen. So I want to talk about something you measured a minute ago, you mentioned a minute ago, which is about measurement. Because a lot of our listeners may not have the same level of expertise. I'm certainly not a carbon expert at all. So I'm just curious, like, how does one measure a ton of carbon? You know, some of the data that you were just throwing out, like, I mean, how do I know in order to make a chair or a shoe or a tube of lipstick? You know, like, how do you measure how much carbon is used or how do you get to measuring a ton of carbon? Well, the first thing I'll say is you're not alone thinking it's complex. You should not feel (laughs) bad about that, nor should anybody on this call, because it is complex. But if we just start with the simplest form, you know, I'm an engineer by degree, so I like math. You know, a ton of carbon that we talk about or a carbon credit is literally equal to a ton of gas, like literally, which is equal to 2,000 pounds of gas. So you could think of a, a huge circle. Or it's the equivalent of 500 uh, fire extinguishers, like if you just want to try to visualize this, or a large hot air balloon. So just think of 50 billion large hot air balloons in the sky. (laughs) That's what we're emitting here, just to put it in context. And then when you measure it, it really is about chemistry and math. So the thing that's very important, let's just take um, a product, as you said, if you want a, a shoe or a tube of lipstick is the very first thing is that you need to look across the entire value chain of that product. So from the very point of the first extraction of whatever materials are being used, all Mm -hmm. the way through how it's um, used in its life and disposed of, actually. So now this is where a lot of complexity um, comes into play. Most of the carbon footprint that's calculated for that product will come 
from um, different elements at each stage of its life cycle, but a lot of it is around the energy, the fuel, the electricity to create it. And that's all the way through the supply chain. And when you take a simple product like a bottle of water, you have the plastic, you have that production, you have the water extraction, et cetera, mm-hmm. all the way towards you can think about how complex a laptop is. But if we, we make it a bit more personal, I love the Series 1 chair. Like I personally want a red one from Steelcase. <laughs> I'm super proud of this chair. But when you know we can walk through, how did we think about that with you and, and our partners that worked on that? We started with the raw materials. What is processing um, energy does it take to make the metal for the base, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, the manufacturing of the plastics for the arms, and even the pulp for the cardboard? How do you manufacture it? How do you actually um, store it in your manufacturing? It takes energy in those buildings. How do you distribute it? The truck that chair sits on as it's either going to a warehouse or an owner do you yeah. sell it in a store? That If it's retail, then there's um, emissions that are coming from that. Again, you can think about the energy usage down to the use phase. And then in a chair, it may have emissions when it's actually recycled that it gives off. That right. makes up the whole carbon footprint of the life cycle of that chair. Obviously, you work to reduce as much as possible as Steelcase is really reducing its own footprint and then have worked with uh, partners to really identify great carbon credits to make that chair carbon neutral by offsetting the rest. Yeah, so let's talk about that and the projects that you choose. I mean, there's probably a million different things that you could invest in, and that's a little mind-boggling as well. So I'm just curious, how do you choose the projects that you invest in? And again, you know, with your engineering hat on, like, how do you measure and say, okay, you know, we invested in this forest, for example, you know, how is it actually working? Yeah. So first of all, Climate Impact Partners has built a great reputation of quality and enhanced due diligence, really beyond the industry's requirements. And quality assurance is really at the heart of what we do. When we are evaluating a project, we start with the very first thing being, who is the partner? Who's actually implementing this on the ground? And I think, as you would know, you know, who you're working with makes all the difference. And so Mm -hmm. that is really at the heart. What's their track record? You know, how do they operate? Do we have a cultural fit? And then we go into the technical, like, what is this baseline? The baseline is what's the current state of how much carbon is being emitted today if nothing changes in our habit? How do they think that this is additional, meaning it wouldn't be funded another way and it's permanent? How do you think about leakage, meaning what leakage means is if I stop deforestation in zone A, does it just move to zone B? Well, that doesn't help the world. Mm -hmm. And then we work with the operational elements. How do we actually implement this in a way that is uh, sustainable, not sustainable necessarily from ESG, but it it works in the communities, it works with the partners, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that gets to project management 101. And then we work on how do we make sure all the stakeholders are really being rewarded for this work? How do we reward the communities? Mm -hmm. These are how we select a project. Another big piece is how do you monitor it and make sure it stays good? My background is actually in onshore wind. And I think, you know, yeah, the big focus is on building the wind farm, but that wind farm has to live for 20, 30 years and run well. Otherwise, like this money... It's exactly the same for us with these projects. So we're really using a lot of technology, digitally monitoring um, the projects over time. And that can be through satellites. It can be through handheld devices. Those are key foundational elements when we're selecting and executing projects. 
okay, just listening to you talk about this makes me feel better going, okay, somebody's actually paying attention that, you know, the wind farm is actually generating wind and, you know, it's not just all crumbling in a field someplace. Yeah. So that's true. Hey, I, I want to talk to you a little bit because you did mention, you know, some of your earlier work and in preparing for this podcast, you had shared with us that you started out at General Motors and I found that really interesting because the transportation industry, much like those of us who work in the industry related to buildings and, you know, any of us who are manufacturers, you know, is often seen as a big carbon emitter. You know, making cars uses a lot of fossil fuel when we're driving our cars around. Um, how did you get into this field coming from there? That's just, to me, a curious path. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I don't know what happens as we age. Like we just are, I say, you know, I say sometimes like your heart and your gut connect more, your head and your heart connect more um, and you really follow it. I started at General Motors at 17 and I didn't start because I was a gearhead or a car junkie. I started because I loved the idea of bringing vehicles to developing countries. And then um, as I left GM with a tremendous amount of training and wonderful experiences working around the world, I went to onshore wind for General Electric really mm. moving more towards impact, green energy, you know, how mm. can my, the work I do every day um, have that impact? And then when Climate Impact Partners called, I was like, really? You're kidding me. I get to take 27 years of industrial operational experience to try to help scale a company that touches lives the way the projects that we talk about touch lives. Sign me up. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated. It's complex. But I mean, I feel like I've been given a gift. Which is great because I think all of us have a feeling like we want to do something that is meaningful and is having a positive impact. And so in, in terms of this role from industry, like how does that help you in terms of kind of this due diligence around your work that we were talking about? Were there things that you learned from that experience that you could bring forward into this industry and be able to think about carbon offsets in a different way? or How did that impact your work? Oh, absolutely. And it's happening every day, you know, um, in our business. Actually, we just wrapped up a four-day training session with Cohort One, um, a team of uh, team members that we put through uh, Plan, Do, Check, Act training. It's a lean um, operational excellence element. What I see here are twofold. One, this is an extremely passionate and driven industry. I mean, I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't lean in sooner. You mm -hmm. know, they're out here fighting for years for things that we're all catching up to now. Um, but what this industry does need is all these lessons learned from the autos, mm -hmm. from the large industrials, from the manufacturing processes to mm -hmm. drive scale, get waste out, be efficient, show data transparency. I mean, you can mentally liken it if you go to one of your manufacturing facilities and it's producing, uh, let's just say it's dying material. It's dying at red. Mm -hmm. There is a quality control around that. There's, you know, automation to really even create that dye. We need to apply those models to this industry mm -hmm. so that we can scale it. We can show transparency. We can actually demonstrate this question of, is it a scam? Is like, absolutely not. So we can get on with, with the real business of uh, reducing carbon emissions. So... In your work, you probably have a lot of good stories, but I'm going to ask you before I let you go to tell us one 
And this is something all of our guests this season, we want to ask them about the impact that they feel like their work or the work of somebody you know has really made a positive impact on people or the planet in recent years. So it's tough, but one story. Oh my gosh, one. (laughs) I'm going to pick out a young um, employee in our organization. Artie Dar. So Artie Dar works for us. Uh, She's located out in California. She's our senior manager of client engagement for the U.S. And she actually co-founded an organization in India called Farmers for Forests. She did this um, with a partner. It's a nonprofit protecting Indian forest cover to fight climate crisis there. And they do it by financially incentivizing farmers to convert their degraded and abandoned farmlands um, into biodiverse and long-surviving forests, biodiverse land sites. They've actually been recognized um, by the, the Indian government and have been asked to participate with large corporates at this point to really identify ways to scale this further in India. And, it, you know, it's stories like that that inspire me. Uh, if, if someone out of college can do that, what are we all doing? And maybe the flip <laughs> I'll say is um, Climate Impact Partners actually, before it was merged with a different name, so the Climate Care Arm, actually was responsible for creating the methodology around clean cooking. And clean cooking mm-hmm. is um, bringing electric or, or just more efficient cook stoves uh, to developing countries. And why I want to share this is probably more for the tidbit of knowledge. Um, So what people probably don't know is that one in three people in the world do not have access to clean cooking. And what that means is they're cooking with charcoal inside of an open flame. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if if you go camping or you ever went camping, Chris, but it's like putting the campfire in your house, shutting the doors and windows. Think about what that means. Okay. Not good. (laughs) Not good at all. So it's leading to 4 million deaths per year from indoor air pollution, more than HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. And I share this because these are the types of things, not just our team at Climate Impact Partners, but this industry is doing. It's not just trying to sell carbon offsets. It's actually trying to drive impact to saving lives. And I think it's really special to get to be a part of, I mean, when everybody around you is is focused on solutions like this. Well, I think those are great Two great stories, so it's okay that you yeah, broke the rules. I cheated. <laughs> but, Thank you. Well, Sherry, it, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like I've learned a lot, and I hope our audience has learned a lot. If there's one last thought that you'd leave us with, what would you say to us? I would just say, you know, especially as the private sector, and you're doing this at Steelcase, but for anybody who's listening, keep leaning in. Keep driving change, investing in your own abatement as corporations, but then investing in solutions that deliver results now, like the solutions we've talked about. We must reduce emissions as quickly as we can, and we need all solutions. And I think we need to stop talking about what's not working and figure out how to make things work. Use learnings from the industries we're all in or came from to make this industry go faster Mm -hmm. to deliver the types of impacts that I shared today. So that's my ask and maybe a bit of a plea. All right. Well, I agree with you wholeheartedly. So thank you for being here and for sharing all of your work and ideas with us today, Sherry. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Same here. Have a great day. Steelcase is dedicated to creating products that help you reach your sustainability goals. Now it's easier than ever to make choices that are better for the planet. 
To explore solutions that help reduce your environmental impact, visit steelcase.com slash WB Sustainability. Thank you for being here with us. Rebecca, can you tell our audience who we're going to be talking to next week? Of course. Next week, we're going to go back to the UK, and we're talking to Benjamin Laker. Benjamin's an author and professor at Henley Business School, and at one point, he got so frustrated with meetings, and I think we can all relate to this, Mm -hmm. and how they were draining his energy. He decided to devote his research to meetings and the impact, or lack thereof, that they were making. Right. So if you hate meetings or at least think they could be better, you're going to want to hear what he found out. Yeah, and he even studied companies who went cold turkey, like no meetings at all. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot to learn there. We hope you join us for that conversation. If you enjoy this week's conversation, please rate or review it so more people can find it. And visit us at steelcase.com slash research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research insights and design ideas delivered to your inbox. Thanks again for being here, and we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better Podcasts possible. Creative Art Direction is by Aaron Ellison. Editing and Sound Mixing by Soundpost Studios. Technical Support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez. And Digital Publishing by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.